The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and you are listening to Good Morning New York here on the Voice America Network. You know, I've been in the real estate business for 13 years, and there are plenty of legendary addresses in Manhattan, but one... 15 Central Park West, is one that stands above the rest. The ultra-luxury condominium on the corner of West 61st Street and Central Park West is and has been home to a laundry list of New York's most powerful bankers, celebrities, and other uber-wealthy people that make New York home either full-time or part-time. The building was completed in 2008 by famed developers Arthur and William Zeckendorf. Today, the building continues its fame, and best-selling author Michael Gross just put out his latest book, House of Outrageous Fortune, which is dedicated to the development and the lifestyle of 15 CPW, uh, a lifestyle of people there, and the world's most powerful address is how it's being built. This is Michael's 14th book. Most of them have been about American empires of sorts, the model business, the Metropolitan Museum, Ralph Lauren, to name a few. Also, a little later on in the program, uh, we have Julian Nicolini, co-founder of the infamous New York restaurant, The Four Seasons, He'll be here to discuss the longevity of this institution and the celebrities who frequent this establishment. And, of course, my panel of broker experts are here and will join the conversation. But first up is Michael Gross. Michael, good morning and thank you for being here. Great to be with you, Vince. So we'll get to the book in a minute. I wanted to first ask you about your earlier career writing about rock music and being the editor-in-chief of Rock Magazine. Tell us about that. Well, um, when I was in high school, I discovered that... um, if you were the editor of a newspaper or a magazine, you could get free records and free concert tickets. <laughs> um, and I, in order to get free tickets to this little gathering called the Woodstock Festival, I invented a magazine and bought a mimeograph machine and wrote the whole thing myself and mimeographed it off and got press tickets to Woodstock. Unfortunately, I didn't know what I had. So when I got home from the weekend after sleeping in a field for three nights... Mm -hmm. Um, A fellow across the street who turned out to be the assistant to the chief accountant of Woodstock Ventures said to me, oh, let me see the pass you had. And I showed it to him, and he said, why didn't I see you? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, that's a stage pass. Ah. So I could have been on stage at Woodstock. I don't mind the fact that I was in the audience. (laughs) And um, that, that, that fascination with rock music lasted about 10 years before I moved on to different things. Yeah, you were also senior editor at George Magazine, John Kennedy Jr.'s political magazine. What was that about, and what was John about? Well, you know, it's funny. I had written several stories about John um, when he was just getting started in New York as a assistant DA. Um, a cover story for New York Magazine was the was a particularly important one because it was the first magazine story that 
took the young fellow seriously. And then I wrote another one for Esquire magazine when he was starting George. I actually went to work for George after John died. Um, oh, when uh, the magazine company that owned the magazine was trying to keep it alive and failing to keep it alive. So I never got to work for him, but I did get to write about him a lot. And um, he was an interesting and fascinating guy. And the thing that I liked the most about him was that he was pretty modest. Um, when after the, after the cover story went off the stands, he wrote me a letter um, Basically, he said that he'd never been in the position before of writing what he didn't quite want to call a thank you letter, but he didn't know how else to say it. Um, and my wife quite lovingly framed that letter, and I still have it in a frame. Yeah, he was an interesting character. You know, if you're in New Yorker long enough, you, you bump into him or you have bumped into him, and I did several times, and always very special, always very sweet. So listen, 15th Century Park West, well, you know, this, this is an, obviously an icon. You know, you call it the world's most powerful address. What, though, is so intriguing about this building, enough where you wanted to sit down and dedicate a book to it? Well, it really, you know, it represents a, a, a number of paradigm shifts, not only in Manhattan, but in New York, not only in New York, but in America, not only in America, but in the world. Um, on the on the kind of microscopic level of New York apartment living, it's on the west side, not the east side, which sounds like not much if you're not a New Yorker. But New Yorkers know that there's a you know a bright red line that runs down the island, right. and rich people traditionally lived on the east side, and sort of second-rate people lived on the west side, even if they were rich, they were ethnic rich or Broadway rich or somehow not the best sort of people. The best sort of people had traditionally for a hundred years lived on the east side. Um, the second paradigm shift is that wealthy New Yorkers always lived in what are called cooperative apartments, and that's a little bit, I don't know, for your audience, maybe that's not arcane, but um, cooperative apartments are a particular kind of ownership structure. The rest of the world lives in condominiums. Well, 15 Central Park West is the first condominium that was not only able to compete with co-ops, but actually has taken the record for the most expensive apartment has taken the record for the most expensive apartment in New York away from a co-op for the first time and held on to it for quite some time. But then on the on the national and the international scale, what 15 Central Park West represents is a new breed of wealth. Not only is it wealth from different sources than traditional wealth. And let's call it traditional wealth, banking wealth, land wealth, um, industrial wealth, even conglomerate wealth. This is wealth that comes from the infotainment world. It comes from all over the world. Um, and it's incalculably larger than what was wealth in New York previously. And that's why you're starting to see these quite hard to reckon, um, almost insane numbers that apartments are now selling for 80, 90, and it's, it's inevitable that very soon there will be a $100 million apartment in New York. And that's because there is this new strata of wealth that has been imposed on the top of the socioeconomic pyramid that has never been seen before. Um, and really what House of Outrageous Fortune is about is the rise of that cohort of wealth and the way that they comport themselves. 
And yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think 15 CPW is certainly one of the buildings that started. I and mean, we can talk about 740 Park in a bit. But in a recent review of the book, it says that you take 15 CPW and use it to describe the face-off between the exclusive co-ops, as you've just discussed, and the Democratic condos. And between the old families of the Upper West, Upper East Side, rather, and the upstarts moving into the Upper West Side, what what propelled that that change or that that you know paradigm shift for you? Is it just because there are so many uber wealthy people here looking for a difference? Well, I think that what happened was <clears throat> you had a couple of very visionary developers, um, and you know let's not let's not make them out to be Jesus Christ. They made a lot of money on this deal, but they they saw an aching need in New York. They saw that there were these people who wanted to own huge apartments here, the kind of apartments that hadn't been built since the 1920s. You know, those old East Side co-ops, they're called pre-war apartments, meaning World War II, but in fact what they are is pre-Depression, because after the start of the Depression, they were not built any longer. And from 1930, let's say, until very, very recently, apartments with five bedrooms, apartments with 7,000 square feet, apartments with 12-foot ceilings, apartments with graciousness and volume and space, really kind of palatial apartments were simply not being built in New York anymore. And the Zeckendorfs and their backers at Goldman Sachs and an Israeli billionaire named Al Ofer saw this, and they realized that they could build these apartments, and if they built it, the billionaires would come. Now, I included Goldman Sachs in that group, but in fact, a great part of House of Outrageous Fortune is the story of the tug of war between the Zeckendorfs and the great investment bank Goldman Sachs over this very concept. Because Goldman Sachs, even though they were backing the building, didn't believe it. They didn't believe that the Zeckendorfs could sell 40 apartments at more than $10 million. And they railed against it. And one of the underlying narrative threads of this book is the incredible tension between the Zeckendorfs and Goldman Sachs that actually at the very end of the book um, ends up in their divorce as business partners from each other. So, so when I say that that was visionary, even Goldman Sachs didn't see it, that there was all this money waiting to be spent, and there was no product, and in that case, product meaning great, big, palatial apartments for great, big people with great, big lives. Um, I was going to... They I was gonna, it, they built go them, and now the world is copying them. I was going to ask you that because clearly, 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 it seems like the Zorks had this vision that Goldman Sachs and their Israeli investor did not. How then? And I'm sure it was a, a tug of war and a struggle then. But why did the Zeckendorf see this? I mean, because at the time, you know, I've been in real estate, you know, before that, you know, 2004, five, you know, it wasn't so obvious that we had people that would buy these kinds of apartments. What did they see there? Because well, I they, think, they... first of all, you have, to, you have to talk about the background of the Zeckendorfs because it, they're the third generation of a real estate dynasty. Right. Their grandfather was Big Bill Zeckendorf, the man who acquired the property on which the United Nations now sits, right. the man who created Roosevelt Field, who created whole villages in Washington, in Philadelphia. He built – he conceived of Century City in Los Angeles. So there was a visionary aspect going back to Grandpa. Their father, William Zeckendorf Jr., built condos on the West Side. Not this sort of condo, rather condos that were more modest and, if not middle class, then upper middle class or lower upper class apartments. Um, and so they come out of a visionary real estate 
crucible. Um, how did they see it? They just do research. They have an ability that is not common, but most important of all, they bought a company called Brown Harris Stevens that was a carriage trade brokerage. And the first thing that they did when they bought with some partners, Brown Harris Stevens, was they invested in a new computer system. And what that computer system did was give them real-time data on who was buying what, who was looking for what, who wanted what. And these guys are kind of real estate wonks. They study this stuff. They study buildings. They study desire. They study the market. And they saw this, and they began by building apartments, small numbers of apartments for very wealthy people. And they watched as very wealthy people would buy two two-bedroom apartments and combine them into a four-bedroom apartment. They saw this happening. Then they added the brokerage, the computerized data, and they foresaw the rise of this market. They saw the money, which we all saw. You couldn't help but see it. And they took a gamble, and their gamble paid off big time. Let me ask you this, because, um, you know, you look at these apartments, and I've been in and out of that building, selling and renting, whatever. Why are they considered trophy apartments? I mean, for example, the finishes, in my opinion, are awful. Some of the units, some of the <laughs> well, units you know, are small. At one point in the book, I, I raised the question of whether this isn't the emperor's new clothes. I know. <laughs> um, they did create an aura that perhaps <clears throat> is not justified by the reality. And in fact, of the 201 apartments in the building, something like 175 of them were renovated. To some extent or another, many of them got renovations. In other words, all the marble, all the finishes, they were all ripped out and replaced. Um, now, there are a lot of apartments in there that were simply bought for investment, and they have the original finishes and fixturing, which, again, I don't know how sophisticated the audience is, but I had to learn that finishes meant the paint, the doors, the moldings, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and the fact of the matter is that there are a lot of apartments in that building that are not spe all that special. They're basically railroad flats for rich people. But there are 40 or 50 trophy apartments out of the 201, and they create a halo effect. And more important, the people who bought them create a halo effect. Because even if you're in one of the smaller apartments in that building, even if you're in one of the apartments in the rear of the building that doesn't look at Central Park, that only looks at Broadway, and that has to be accessed through a kind of second-rate elevator, right. even if you're in that second-rate elevator, you're still Lloyd Blankfein's neighbor, you were Sandy Wiles neighbor, you're Sting's neighbor, you're Denzel Washington's neighbor, and you're stationary, says 15 Central Park West. And the glamour of that address has kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The The... The gamble that the Zeckendorfs took worked, and the magic of that building has yet to falter. The prices keep going up and up and up. People are shooting at it who are, you know, kind of whoever the Goliath on the block is, they want to be the David who brings it down. But to this day, the $88 million sale of a penthouse in that building is the record for a Manhattan residence. It will fall, but it has stood for a very long time. I agree, and we've got about 30 seconds left before we go to break. Um, so you think, based on everything you just said, that the public's fascination with the with this building is because we watch the uber-wealthy, very different from the traditional older wealthy, how they live now in this new world? Well, you know, I've been fortunate. I stumbled upon um, an idea when I wrote the book 740 Park, which is 
I don't write about books. I write about wealth in America, and I use real estate as a window onto that wealth, and it happens to be a really telling window. And I think that that's why 15 Central Park West is so fascinating, because it is this sui generis building. It is this unique thing that has provided the world with a way to watch how the wealthy live and how they spend their money. All right, we're going to go to break, Michael, but stay there. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with Michael Gross, best-selling author of House of Outrageous Fortune, about an icon building on Central Park West, 15 Central Park West. Michael, in your book, you take us um, inside the influential roster of owners at the building from hedge fund managers to TV and sports icons. Who are these people and why did they buy at 15 CPW, as we talked about earlier, at that time when this trend or this paradigm shift was just happening? That is a huge question. When I started working on House of Outrageous Fortune, the first thing that I had to do was figure out who owned the apartments, because one of the other differences between condos and co-ops is that co-ops in New York have to be bought by people. So when you look at a deed, you know who owns the apartment. Condos have the great advantage of being saleable to corporations, to trusts, to limited liability companies that are often used by the wealthy to hide their ownership. So of the 201 apartments, I think I figured out who owned about 175 of them. And then I had this list of names, and I didn't know who a lot of these people were because, you know, financial types are not necessarily um, celebrities. They're not stars. You don't automatically know their names. So I began researching each of these individuals to find out who they were. And at a certain point, that became unwieldy. And I came up with this idea of the tribes of 15 CPW. And I created a document called Tribes that grouped all of these people. And what I discovered in doing that was that the leading tribe at 15 CPW of a single um, corporation was Goldman Sachs, who had backed the building and a lot of Goldman Sachs employees, directors, executives bought apartments there. They, of course, heard about it through their own internal grapevine. Um, But the 
the larger group was what are called alternative investment managers. And alternative investments are any investment other than stocks and bonds. So there, the, the building has been called the hedgy hive because so many hedge fund people live there. But it's not just hedge funds. It's also real estate investment trusts, biotech companies, biopharma companies, a whole lot of financial companies that don't do traditional stock and bond investing. And I think I figured out that there were 37 of those households out of the 201 apartments. And I have put a researcher to work on figuring out very roughly, because it's a hard thing to do, how much money was controlled out of that building. And those 37 alternative investment funds control assets under management of $437 billion. That's how much money is controlled out of that building. And a lot of those people, you know, I describe it as there was a certain cohort in the world, not just New York, who heard a dog whistle go off, a, a, a sound that you and I don't hear. But really, really wealthy people, when this building was announced, they heard that dog whistle go off. And they came like, you know, dogs after a piece of red meat. They knew that this building, backed by Goldman Sachs, was going to be it. The next largest cohort was more traditional banking, but then there was the international wealthy. There are a huge number of Russians, Chinese, Israelis, people from the so-called BRIC nations of Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Um, again, very difficult to figure out who these people were, but I was able to find out who a lot of them were. There are some traditional wealthy types, you know, CEOs of companies like a drug company or an insurance company, but they're far outnumbered by these different people. There are also a lot of people from what I call the infotainment world, the conjunction of information and entertainment that has become so important internationally. Um, and then the funny thing was that I had a category on my tribes list called old money. Mm-hmm. But old money at Central at 15 Central Park West is Andrea Kersner, who's the daughter of Saul Kersner, the guy who founded Sun City in South right. Africa. Right. And Tyler Ellis, the daughter of Perry Ellis, the fashion designer, who was um, conceived in a test tube while her father was dying of AIDS. They represent old money in this building because they're <laughs> second generation. You know, I, I remember when the building was first uh, on the market for sale, and you're right. I mean, um, it, it sold out in a, in a heartbeat. But, you know, there were some non-celebrated types that were able to purchase in the building on the Broadway side because some of these smaller two bedrooms were selling for about, you know, two million, two one, two two, which, you know, at that time wasn't so bad. So here these people are in the middle of all this, um, these billions of dollars and, and high-profile people. So there's something in it for all. Now... Speaking of that, speaking of the billion dollars or $137 billion, you know, probably floating around that building. $437 billion. $437, excuse me. You know, so, small country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how do, how do you think 157 compares to 15 CPW? That building is being known as the billionaire building. What, we're taking it to the next level now. Um, well, I don't actually think we have. I think that the hype has gone to the next level. I think that the developer of 157 saw the success of 15 Central Park West and decided to hitch his star to its success. Um, and yes, there are 60, 80, $90 million apartments in that building, and yes, some billionaires have built them, but there are some significant differences. That building is so 1990s to me. It's, an, it's a glass tower, number one. Yeah. The glass tower is very last century. Um, it's look at me. Whereas 15 Central Park West, sheathed in limestone, is a fortress like the fortresses of the 1920s. 
Then there's the taste level. Um, the only review of fifteen of one fifty seven that has come out so far has completely trashed the building. Um, and um, I think of it as an eyesore. I th- I've described it as an upraised middle finger pointed at the skyline of New York. Um, <laughs> so far, no one in a position of prominence has disagreed with that judgment of mine. Um, also, the interesting thing is that aside from a handful of people, one hedge fund guy, two people in the garment center, nobody really knows who's bought those apartments yet. Um, when, when the building was first being sold, um, so many Chinese were buying there that in the real estate community, the building was actually referred to as Chinatown. Um, there are still articles about all the Chinese who live there, although, or who have bought there because most of those sales haven't closed yet. But, but we don't know yet. Um, another difference is that 15 Central Park West was conceived of as a building that would not only attract these high-flying foreign types who might never use their apartments or might only come into town for a week. But it was also built to attract New York families, people who would raise children here, people who would make 15 Central Park West their primary residence. And they were successful in doing that. I think the general consensus is that building these, these glass towers, billionaire buildings going up along 57th Street in particular in New York right now, that they are going to be empty most of the year because all they are is stores of wealth for people from foreign countries who live in places where there's no rule of law, where you don't know if your money is going to be yours day after tomorrow. And so they bring it out and they do things like buy a million, a $90 million apartment in order to keep their money safe. Real estate in New York is a pretty safe investment. Very much so. You know, you're known as a fastidious researcher. How do you get access to so many people, including the Zeckendorfs, or how do you find out some of these LLCs who are actually the owners of these apartments? I mean, how do you do this? I mean, as well, a talk host, they pay I do my research. Size bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, um, that's what I do for a living. Um, and I'm not going to give away all my trade secrets, but I okay. mean, with the Zeckendorfs, it just so happens that there's this weird coincidence that the Zeckendorfs' grandfather is a character in my book, 740 Park. Yeah. So I knew them from that. Um, and we knew each other because I live in Manhattan and I run into these people all the time. And they read me. Some of them do, at least. Um, but as, from there, which is you know just basically knowing people and having access to them, the other side of journalism, you know, so very, a lot of journalism these days is just about access. It's about whose phone number do you know. Right. And you pick up the phone and you make a call and, you know, Tom Cruise's PR person says, okay, you can interview Tom, but you can't mention Scientology. Now, I don't play that way, but there are, you know, there are places where access becomes very important. The other side of journalism is enterprise, and it's pick up the phone, do the research, get on the Internet, go to the, go to the Department of Building, read the deeds, find out who signed the form to get permission from the Department of Buildings to do the renovation. There are a thousand routes to figuring out who's behind an LLC, and you have to try at least 1,030 of them to get the information. All right, listen, Michael, we have one minute left. So my, my, my last question to you is, and I wish I could talk to you for the full hour, and maybe you'll come back, but what I'd is up to. next? What's up next for Michael Gross? I mean, is it is it, you know, 157? Are we going to be digging into that that project or something completely different? You know, the perfect building to tell a story doesn't come along very often. So 740 Park was certainly the perfect building to tell the story of wealth in the in the in the 20th century in New York and and at the turn of the millennium, 15 Central Park West represented something pretty special and unique. Um I have also written about fashion in my career and 
19 years ago, I wrote another bestseller called Model about the fashion modeling business. My wife's been trying to talk me into writing a sequel to it for those 19 years. You and should. And I finally figured out how to do it, so I'm writing a book about fashion photography right now. You should, because that book was, I think, probably one of my first Michael Gross books, and I do remember it very well. Anyway, Michael, listen, thank you so much. Like I said, I wish I could talk to you a little longer. Maybe you'll come back again. Uh, good luck. Uh, much success with the book. And have a great week. Thank you. And please say hi to Julian Nicolini for me. He's a darling, darling man. <laughs> I certainly will. All right, everybody. Okay. We'll be right back. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. My next guest is Julian Nicolini. Julian is a New York City restauranteur who co-owns the Four Seasons Restaurant. He is a native of Tuscany in Italy and has lived in New York City since 1973. Often described as the madcap maitre d' of one of the world's most famous restaurants, he has charmed presidents, rock stars, and royalty. Julian, thank you for being with me today. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Well, thank you very much for letting me in. Absolutely. So, after Michael Gross. <laughs> yeah, I hear you two are good friends. That, that's pretty Oh, ironic. yeah, it's a tremendous writer. I mean, he really does. He does, he does do his homework, that's for sure. No, he really does. He's one of the best researchers, um, and yeah. I do read every one of his books. Yes. So anyway, you, you know, th this is a couple of weeks ago when I was doing some research. Rumor had it that your landlord, um, Abby Rosen, is considering using your current space to open his own swanky restaurant. What is that, rumor or a fact? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think that Abby Rosen in the first, loved the first season restaurant. Abby Rosen, I believe, that it's going to um, uh, basically become our partner in the first season restaurant in the near future. So how has the Four Seasons remained so popular and consistent over all these years? I mean, it's, it's a fantastic place. I mean, in my opinion, number one in New York. But how has it remained so popular and well, so consistent? Well, I think it's uh, very well known. A lot of people, I'm sure, that do not know. But uh, it's located in the Singram building, which happens to be one of the most incredible buildings in New York City, designed by Miss Van der Rohe. This is one, this is the only building that is designed in New York City. And the restaurant itself is designed by Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson, unfortunately, is no longer with us, but he used to have an office in this building and used to come down to the Four Seasons restaurant almost every day. 
so you take that into consideration and you have a tremendous space. I mean, it's extremely beautiful. It is basically timeless. If you can think about it, that it's almost more than 50 years old. But in addition to that, basically, the most important thing is the food that we're serving, seasonality of the food, basically, and also the service itself. And so we've been trying to we have been trying to continue that particular uh, subject for a very long time, and um, and this is what it's all about. Well, I agree with you because when I go to restaurants, I tend to go to the same places regularly, and most of that is because the service is excellent and the food is good. So why you know try yeah, to fix something that isn't broken? It's extremely important thing also, and also it's very important to be there every day to make sure that everything goes according to plan instead of just. Being, um, being an owner that it doesn't show up at the restaurant at all. I mean, you know, absentee ownership does, does not really work in this particular kind of business. So, And we really care about our customer. We really care about our staff. And we try to do the best we can every day. Julian, tell us a little bit about your background in training and hospitality in Italy and how you translated that into huge success in New York. Because, you, you know, you and your restaurant are well, really a huge success. Yes, I understand, but it's nothing to do with me, basically. It has to do with the fact that I really care about the food that I serve. I really care about the people that come to the course season on a daily basis. And I consider it um, a, a true honor when people show up in the course season restaurant, especially on a daily basis and also on a weekly basis as well. So, and besides the fact that I'm, I'm Italian and I really care about being Italian as well, but the most important thing that I really care about is that I love to go to work every day. I love to take care of people. I love to uh, please them, and I love to do what I do. That's basically the bottom line. I mean, I've been I've basically I've been in this business all my life. I mean, I grew up in Italy, and uh, and uh, basically our house was like a small restaurant because we, we basically cooked for everybody. Then I went to school in Rome, and then after being in school in Rome for a couple of years, I went to school in uh, – no, actually, I went to work at the Delbury Monte Carlo, which is a very good training spot. And then when I came to this country, I went back to school again in Brooklyn, New York Technical College. And, and then I started working in the restaurant. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun. And, and I really um, I wish that everybody would have as much fun as I do in the restaurant business. That's all. Let me ask you this, because I, I yeah. worked in the restaurant business when I was in college as well. And I, I go on record as saying, even today, after two or three different careers, uh, it was yeah. one of the most fun and interesting times of my life. Why, though asking you now, why, though, is the restaurant business so much fun? Well, what, what do you see? What do you get out well, of it every day? Because basically, um, you, uh, you're, um, you're basically on theater. It's like being in a theater, and every day is something new. Every day is something more exciting. There are different people coming every single day. They're totally different than the pre- previous people of yesterday and so on. Uh, the food is very exciting as well. We have chefs that are constantly developing new recipes, new techniques, and so on. So, all that is very exciting, and it's also the most important thing. It's very exciting to please people, and we're also very lucky enough at the Four Seasons Restaurant that we have a, such a tremendous clientele. Whether you know one day you have President Clinton, whether the next day you have Martha Stewart, or whatever, or the next day you have somebody very famous, and so on. That creates a lot of excitement. It's a lot of exciting for our guests. It's a lot of exciting for our people, and it creates a lot of excitement for the, for the people in the kitchen. And everybody basically, we, we don't have a, time, a downtime at all at the Four Seasons restaurant. We're always working. We're always trying to do the best we can, and we're always trying to develop a new recipe and develop new food and, and, and please our customers. That's basically how we stay in business. There is no, no way out. All right. So food, food and staff are, are uh, major and, and very important yes. to keeping 
uh, everything yeah. flowing over there. So how do you hire staff? What are the requirements? What do you specifically look for well, when someone comes in well, and wants to work the, there? The, what we're really trying to do as far as when we hire staff, the most important thing, they really do not have to have an experience in food or in service at all. I mean, what's most important about hiring people is that they really like what they're doing, whether they really like to please people or not. And they have to have some kind of integrity and some kind of belief that and they really, they must love to do what they're going about to do. That's all. And That's since the okay, since the beginning, your restaurant has been a magnet for celebrities. You just named a few and global yeah. elites. What? Why? What about the Four Seasons draws them to come there on a regular well, basis? Well, uh, first of all, you know, we have two restaurants: the Four Seasons restaurant. We have the grill room, which is the Correct. first room as you walk up the steps, and we have the cool room. I mean, in the uh, in the grill room. Um, First of all, the tables, the, the, the way that the restaurant is designed is designed in such a way that everybody, uh, whether you're sitting next to somebody else at the next table or so on, you're not going to be able to hear the conversation whatsoever. So it's really designed for privacy, it's designed for comfort, and it's designed for such a way that you basically don't have any other restaurant like that in this town. So it's very special. Jackie Onassis often dined there, I believe, when she was a book editor at Doubleday. What was she like? Oh, yes. Oh, well, I think that um, she dined at the Four Seasons very, very often. And uh, I believe that the first time she came at the Four Seasons restaurant and she walked into the grill room, everybody just got, you know, stopped talking. And that's the first time that I've ever seen anything like that (laughs) at all. I mean, just everybody stopped and they just looked at this incredible woman walking up the steps. And sitting at the regular table without any any frustration at all, <laughs> so it was really amazing. And uh, but she... I would like to say one thing. Huh? Yes. No, I was going to say I agree with you because she had that presence. I bumped into her once quite yeah. by accident, and it was and just she was an... extremely. She was extremely smart. I mean, yeah. uh, the first time that she came to the Four Seasons restaurant, she didn't know anybody's name. But I would like to tell you that the following time that she came to the Four Seasons restaurant, she knew everybody's name. So it's really impressive that somebody you know. I'm sure that you have your special card at your office before you go into any any restaurant. You remember the Methodist name of this this particular individual, the other particular individual. But it was very impressive. Everybody was extremely happy to have her there. Yeah, I I can well imagine. And, of course, on the heels of that, Princess Diana dined in the grill room. So was that like one of the most spectacular afternoons? We still have quite a few, and we still have very, uh, you know, important people come to the Fulton on a daily basis, whether it was, Princess Diana, whether it's Henry Kissinger, whether it's Steve Peterson, whether it's Michael Stewart. I mean, they all come to the proceedings because mm-hmm. basically it's in the quintessential restaurant of New York City. That's all I can say. I mean, at this level. <laughs> I mean, it's been there since uh, 1959. Uh, if you walk in there today, like today, uh, it looks like the restaurant was probably you know, built on five years ago. So it's really impressive. Julian, tell me about some of the presidents who have come by over the years. I think that we have um, had uh, every president except, uh, I, I don't mean every president, I mean, we have had Ronald Reagan, we have Jimmy Carter, we had uh, George Bush, uh, senior and junior, I would say, and uh, we had, of course, Mr. Bill Clinton, and, uh, yeah, the only president that we, we never saw at the Four Seasons restaurant since I've been here since 1977 was Richard Nixon. Everybody else came. Very interesting. So what are your thoughts about that, the famous building that we just talked about earlier with Michael Gross, 15 CPW? I'm sure a lot of those folks dine at the Four Seasons. What is your impression yes, of do. these? Yes, be- they do, whether it's Sandy Wild or, uh, or quite a few of those hedge fund people. Yeah, they all dine at the Four Seasons restaurant. What's my impression of that building? 
I think my impression of the building, I think it's one of the most beautiful buildings in New York City. And I totally agree with uh, Michael Gross, the guard in the other building on, the, on 57th Street. I mean, God, it's really a pretty ugly building. And, it, and, and I would like to say it's pretty unfortunate that a lot of people are just buying buildings, buying apartments or buildings like that, and they're empty for, uh, uh, you know, for 52, <laughs> 51 weeks out of the year. That's pretty unfortunate for the city in New York. That's all. I agree. I don't think that building is designed very well anyway, but the fact that it's considered the billionaire's building, I'm sure we're going to have um, lots of people um, stopping by the Four Seasons. Do you think – are there any expansion plans for that building? I mean, obviously, you can handle the crowd that you've had you know, through the yeah. years, but do you plan to expand well, to make no, the space no, bigger? No, at this moment, because at this moment, you know, we are working on our negotiation station for uh, our extension of the lease and the new lease and so on. Well, I would like to say there is a new building on Park Avenue, especially 432 Park Avenue, that is going up. And that's another extremely beautiful building. And I'm sure that a lot of those people that they're going to be buying building in that building are going to become customers of the Four Seasons Restaurant because it's so close by. Versus if you're talking about, you know, 15 cents of Park West, I mean, it's, it's much farther away. But uh, if you're talking about, you know, Park Avenue 57th Street, I think that a lot of those customers are going to become our customers as well. I agree, and there's tremendous expansion um, happening over there. Of course, you know, we'd love to hear some juicy stories from you on who comes and goes and any of the scandals in the restaurant, if you're prepared or willing to give us some. (laughs) I better not. There's too many of those. (laughs) Give us one, Julian. Just give us one. You don't have to mention names. Just tell us a story. Well, you know, I mean, I think that's about uh, in the summer of about approximately 10 years ago, we had uh, three beautiful women showing up at the Four Seasons restaurant. They were probably, on, probably between like 25 and 30 years old, and they were sitting by the pool. And they were having a tremendous lunch, and someone, one of my, my regular customers, called me up and told me to make sure that they're having a great time and so on. So I went over to the table, and uh, I said to them, what would you like to drink? They said, oh, only the best. So, you know, they started with Cristal Rosé, then uh, Monster Chef and Romane Conti, then they then the Cheval Blanc, and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I kept on checking on them, and I kept on drinking them once, uh, once in a while. And uh, so uh, like half an hour after they were seated, uh, one of the young ladies, she said to me, says, has anybody ever jumped in the pool? And I said, of oh, course not. And I said, well, I said, maybe we're going to be the first to do it. And sure enough, like 15 minutes later, there were all three, the three of them that were totally naked and were totally jumping in the pool. And it was like, a wild party. I mean, it, it, it was incredible. And was, it, was this lunchtime or was this dinner time? Yeah, this was lunchtime. Lunchtime, thank God, that uh, the lunch started about one thirty in the afternoon. So we probably had half of the room uh, still uh, having lunch at the first season instead of full room. So, but the customers, they seemed to totally enjoy the, the show. There's no question about it. And, <laughs> I'm sure they did. Uh, and they were there until about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So they had a tremendous time. From from drinking and eating and jumping in the pool and then the, the and then they left and on the way out uh, because it was a beautiful day they they reenacted the whole performance in front in, in front of the building because in front of the building again you have two pools as well so they did that all over again the oh check came God. about to be more than ten thousand dollars because you know they were drinking and uh, the customer that called me up regarding this reservation called me up the next day all upset and said, what have they done? Well, they, they had a tremendous amount of uh, good time. That's what they did. And besides that, you know, they entertained half the room. And he said, so tell me, how much is the check? And he said, well, 
$10,000 plus tip, and they said, that would be no problem. 10000 plus tip and not <laughs> yeah, a problem. That, was, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> Only in New York City, Julian. So last question to you. <laughs> you can last, do something like that. Last question. So you refer yeah. to sometimes as the mischievous co-owner of the Four Seasons. Yeah. Tell me what mm-hmm. that means. Well, what does that mean? You know, it's it's nice to um, it's nice to um, play tricks on people once in a while, especially our regular <laughs> customers. They they seem to enjoy it, you know. And uh, and some of them, you know, especially when they want something and you don't give it to them, it's even better. Well, so I'm I'm going to conclude with you know in, in in addition to the food and in addition to the service, yeah. people do come back because Julian Nicolini is there greeting them no. and taking care of them. So great. Well, you got to give yourself credit for that. Well, now now you have to come and you have to come. I'm to... Go- <laughs> I actually I I actually do frequent the place pretty often, but next time I come, I'm sure. going to look out for you and say hello, and that will be very soon. Wonderful, Julian. Well, thank you thank you so thank much you for joining much. us. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Have a good day. We, Thank you. We'll be right back. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America channel. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. And, of course, my panel is here with me, my expert panel, feet on the street, as I call them, real estate agents, top of their game, Niall Lundgren is president of his own firm, Dalian Realty. Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman and Perul Brombat from CORE. Um, you know, we're all real estate agents and we all get involved in our business, which in, in, in this business, and we've talked about this through the weeks, it can be and oftentimes is 24 by 7. But we do need to find time for, you know, some downtime, as we call it, whether it's a weekend away, whether it's socializing with friends here in the city. It's called New York Lifestyle. And I think as we go through uh, season two, which, by the way, begins on July 1st. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I wanted to shout out that to you all today. We're going to include a lot more lifestyle into our real estate conversation because just like anything else, living in New York, working in New York, regardless of your industry, uh, lifestyle plays an important role. So, guys, you know, today I wanted to just ask your comments on – well, first of all, let's go back to Michael Gross. Great interview, but what 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 are your comments on on 15 CPW as, a, as the, the uber-wealthy uh, building – that, as Michael claims, has changed the paradigm of how we look at these glamorous buildings from old money to new money. And if any of you have read the book, comments or thoughts? 
Niall, let's start with you. So I, I haven't read the book um, per se, but I mean, I thought it was a fantastic interview. And, you know, he had a lot of really good insight into, like, the demographics of the building. And, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, you, you like to think about it as just being, you know, obviously New York is dominated by finance guys, uh, by the finance industry. And you like to think that maybe a building like that is dominated by it. But it's just interesting to see who else um, li- lives in a building like that. Um, and then, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, you, you mentioned 157 as well. Um, and, you know, the, the demographic of the international buyers coming in and New York being a safe investment, I think that's what we're seeing across the board is that, you know, these international um, folks are coming in and, and parking money in New York City real estate. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this on a couple of shows in the past where, you know, right now the Chinese, uh, well, just international in general, is spending lots of money. And back in the days of uh, 15 CPW selling, I think it sort of started the trend, at least in my real estate world, that I paid attention to who was buying there. And it's interesting. I think he said out of 201 apartments, he was able to find out who owns 175. So, of course, now I'm intrigued with who owns the rest of those places. (laughs) Yeah, what's tough is that sometimes you have a lot of contracts that are in the names of an LLC or a corporation, yeah. and so confidentiality is, is a lot easier, especially downtown. I think uptown um, people are more sort of clear about who's buying it. It's in the person's name. Downtown is very different than uptown, I feel. Um, I don't know if you completely, guys agree or not. Completely different, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, so much of, sorry, guys. No, go ahead, Perul. I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting because, you know, our audience is a national, is a national audience. And the interesting thing to think about in terms of buildings like 15 CPW or even 1 West 57 is ultimately it's about vertical neighborhoods here because whereas, you know, if you live in Houston, you're going to pick, you know, this specific neighborhood, this specific suburb, et cetera, where you're going to want to buy your home if you want it to be somewhat exclusive. Um, here, you know, we are, we live in such a, you know, I mean, we're, we live in 22 square miles, and so our neighborhoods are vertical, and really, I think what 1500 Park West was able to do was create a specific sort of vertical neighborhood that Michael was talking about. Um, what it really was sort of focused on is sort of a New Yorker building, and they were able to achieve that that wasn't your traditional you know, Upper East Side, Fifth Avenue building. Um, it's interesting that even at this price point, there can be, like, almost this idea in New York City of first versus second tier because somebody who's buying at three and four, $4,000 a square foot at 1 West 57, it's still considered to be sort of a secondary building in comparison to 15th Central Park West as of right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So, you know, the Four Seasons and, and other restaurants like it on that top tier of, you know, fabulous places to go for business, for social, whatever, to see, you know, or to be seen. What do you guys, how do you guys feel about those types of restaurants, you know, pro or con? I mean, are they part of this? Uh, well, obviously they are part of the New York lifestyle, but are they part of our day-to-day lives? I mean, they're not part of mine. I mean, I do frequent from time to time, but I don't, have that kind of stature or money that I would be in there all the time. What what sets those places aside, do you think? Uh, if I take a, cl- a client out, um, it's going to be, for the experience, it's going to be something memorable. For my personal use, I go to I go to these restaurants sort of once a quarter, I would say, so four to six times a year, because it's so special that, 
I think if you, for me, if I go often, it wouldn't feel as special. Um, so I have my top 10 restaurants in the city and I just know they're going to be 10 out of 10. So it's something to look forward to. And, um, as far as clients though, very different. So depending on the client, where they're from, what they're into, where they're looking uptown, midtown, um, it's always great to go to like literally a five star so that they understand what it's really about and what the neighborhood can provide them if they were to buy in that neighborhood. Well, for me, um, the Four Seasons specifically, um, you know, I mean, it's just one of the, if you look at just about anything even online, it'll tell you that, you know, if there are top ten, like, power lunch places, you know, Four Seasons has traditionally been that for a very long time amongst a few others. Um, I think that a lot of times taking clients um, who want to experience if they're that ilk of a buyer, um, I think it becomes a natural resource for us to sort of take our clients there. Also, um, it's an interesting thing because being real estate brokers and, you know, I'm a big advocate of just living your life and then letting everything else sort of show up as a part of it. Uh, but one of the, one of the interesting facets of going to places and frequenting these places, it also sort of helps you connect to a certain ilk of buyer or seller. And it's amazing what happens uh, quite often in, at, at these places because you really do end up meeting some very interesting people, whether you're grabbing a drink at the bar or just happen to be there at lunch and run into somebody you know and they know someone else. So I do think that from a networking perspective, uh, these sort of higher-end places tend to be um, a great resource for us as well. And a talking point, too. You know, like I just went to Scarpetta on 14th Street and I went, you know, it's great now. I can just really talk to somebody and go, oh, meatpacking district. Oh, I just checked out Scarpetta, and, and the fish was amazing. So it's definitely such a big talking point. I think more than anything else in the city, food is, is number one, personally. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, I, I in my personal business, I try to sell a lifestyle <clears throat> in addition to just selling New York apartments. And that, that sort of means – whether they're native New Yorkers, you know, buying or upgrading because they've already been here or people new mm -hmm. coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a guy coming in from Florida just over the end of last week, two days. We looked for two days, bought something by the end of the second day. But for him, because he's not a native New Yorker, it was also about lifestyle. I found myself educating him over the course of that two days, not only in the housing stock. We had a particular price point. It's a pied-a-terre, just a weekend, you know, whatever, getaway. But he needed to and wanted to be educated on New York lifestyle. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And I realized by Saturday morning, you know, when I was heading out of the, the city for the weekend, I said, you know what? I enjoy talking about New York life. I enjoy talking about what New York has to offer. I believe that it helps in our selling of apartments because if you just keep it to product and not expand it out, it's not going to be as successful for you because everybody, let's face it, everybody is intrigued with what we do here in this city. In addition to living here, they're intrigued by all of our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Do you all do the same thing? When you 100%. I think, I think in general, if you're talking about somebody coming in, uh, for example, with a pied-a-terre, you have to understand who they are and what their lifestyle is because if they don't understand the neighborhoods in the city that well, then it's up to you to really figure out what fit, what part of the of the city is going to is going to best fit the type of life that they lead in the sense that they want to lead while they're you know part time in New York City. So that's really important. And then having a grasp on the city and then being able to educate them, like you said, Vince, is really important to, to not only because you could just show product, 
but there's a, there's an extra value if you could show and, and demonstrate that you're able to help them live the lifestyle that they want to live while being in New York City. So I completely agree with you. And, and I also think that sort of you know if I'm you know at whatever if I'm at Bergdorf's or wherever wanting to purchase a dress or a handbag or a specific shoe, I'm much more comfortable buying that sort of a product from somebody who seems to really love and be passionate about fashion and everything that it has to offer and, you know, just has an understanding that's deeper than just saying, well, here I am standing trying to sell you a shoe or a handbag. I think it's the same thing with us. Um, I, I feel that um, if, when we are working with our buyers that are the higher-end buyers or sellers, um, they are much more comfortable if they feel that you completely understand our, and are a part of their lifestyle. And so that these restaurants or, you know, certain places that they're extremely aware, in fact, of that this is, these are the certain lifestyle places. If those are things that are part of sort of your familiarity and your scope of your own day-to-day life, I think that it just makes them much more of a seamless connection with the people that you're working with and serving. Guys, listen, thank you so much. We're at the end of our time. I just wanted to say one more time, thank you, everybody out there, for listening. Thank you for paying attention to Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco. We have been renewed for a year. The show is moving to Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. starting July 1st. That was uh, my request, um, a little better than Mondays. And so I want to say thank you once again. We've got a 52-week commitment, and we will be here with plenty more shows. On the heels of our conversation today, though, the condo market in New York has never been hotter with luxury towers on the rise all around the city. There are more than 70 new condo buildings with apartments for sale in Manhattan, some with technological marbles and others with world-class amenities. Recently, I showed a buyer of mine a penthouse apartment at the new 22 Central Park West building, asking price $26.5 million, and they're interested. That is a lot of gold bars, and so it goes. Good morning, New York. We'll be back next week. Until next time, thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being with you next Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Time, live on the Variety Channel here on uh, the Voice America Network. You can always catch the show later in the day or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. Remember, you can tweet or find me on Facebook. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.